0: Ultimately... Uh, the return on investment proposition for pharmacogenomics is let's get the uh, right medicine uh, right away so that whatever that pharmaceutical is intended to do will happen right the first time will be optimized and we'll eliminate uh, all of the unnecessary additional visits to the doctor, visits to the emergency room, personal symptomatology and quality of life that the patient might have as a result of not being uh, effectively treated. That's the core ROI uh, for pharmacogenomics.
1: Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss genomics research and how new discoveries are shaping our understanding of science and nature. I'm your host, Andrew Hinton. If you tuned in last episode, we discussed pharmacogenomics and its potential use both in drug development and in the clinical space. In some instances, pharmacogenomics may be used to stratify patients by using genetic markers to assess the efficacy of a particular medicine for that specific patient, or the possibility of adverse drug reactions. Today, we are here to talk to Ron Leopold about various factors that influence the implementation pharmacogenomics in the clinic, including a paradigm shift towards the idea of value-based healthcare. Let's listen in. Ron Leopold, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
0: Great to be here, Andrew.
1: So start us off, if you don't mind, by giving a little bit of your background and how you ended up working in this field.
0: I'm an occupational medicine physician. I've been in the employee benefit space for 20 plus years. And so I've served both on the insurance side as well as on the advisory side to help various stakeholders uh, extract the best value that they can from investments from their perspective. So that means largely in the employee benefit space, it's going to be large employers making an investment the coverage of health and medical benefits for their employees and dependents. How do they get the most value for the dollars that they spend? In working in this space and as a physician, I certainly uh, always focus on medical costs, and I should say medical and pharmacy costs, uh, especially since in the last five years, the pharmacy piece of the equation has just skyrocketed. As I've looked at medical costs, pharmacy costs, as I've looked at overall costs of a population of health plan members, what I started finding was a lot of this was driven by newer technologies, and I've always been interested in genomics. Uh, I'm enamored with so many of the new capabilities and really the confluence of kind of a background in uh, the employer-payer space, medical costs, and genomics brought me to uh, the very oft-cited perspective of uh, pharmacogenomics.
1: In our last episode, we reviewed the applications and utility of using pharmacogenomics, and today we're here to discuss the implementation of these applications. So what is the current state of pharmacogenomics implementation in the clinical setting? Could you give us a little bit of a scope?
0: I have familiarity of at the level of the treating provider. They are one of several stakeholders. My perspective is looking at kind of the um, ecosystem in which the transaction of the provider being familiar enough with and comfortable enough with pharmacogenomics to order it. I would say right now, where it comes to um, employer-sponsored benefits, covering services that are delivered in healthcare system by individual uh, providers and physicians, pharmacogenomics has not really very well penetrated into common practice. Uh, So in other words, there's a lot of work to be done to get, I think, some of the very promising capabilities into uh, common use when people who are covered by employer insurance are going to see their doctor for treatment.
1: So are there certain areas of healthcare where it has penetrated well and other areas where it's not used as much as it could be?
0: I think in, in common practice, uh, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. So I think because the science seems to be strongest for uh, psychiatric medications, uh, the psychoactive substances, that um, there's probably uh, more use of pharmacogenomic testing as a piece of the puzzle to help uh, identify The best medication or uh, medicine regimen uh, for a patient requiring those medicines. But even in that sphere, I would say that that's more the exception than the rule. By and large, the problem here is the fact that you need several stakeholders to make pharmacogenomics actually work. And the stakeholders are first and foremost, the treating provider, educating the provider, making sure that the provider understands, making sure that the provider knows what the capabilities are, are comfortable with what it means, uh, and have uh, ready access to that. Understanding the friction uh, or the delay or lag between Having uh, the testing done and interpreted and used to help guide prescribing patterns, and having uh, this type of testing paid for in any one of a number of scenarios, which I think we're going to get into.
1: So from both a clinical perspective and from a business perspective, what is the case for and against implementation of pharmacogenomics into clinical care?
0: Well, clinically, I think a perfect scenario is that every provider, every physician writing a prescription knows uh, or has perfect information regarding pharmacogenomics, understands when And how it can be utilized, has access to that information, can get access or have access to that information at the exact time of needing to prescribe medicine and be confident that the testing has been or will be covered and paid for is the perfect scenario. Unfortunately, our reality is very different. We have uh, providers that aren't necessarily operating in a world where pharmacogenomics is a part of how they they commonly practice. They are not always familiar with what some of the PGX testing is able to inform and guide. There is a very problem some delay between thinking about uh, ordering or prescribing a medicine and then actually getting the results and the interim between that uh, those points, if we're talking about two or three weeks, that's abjectly unacceptable. If you have somebody with a clinical need to be on a medicine, the physician's not going to want to wait. And then finally, in terms of how this gets paid for, whether or not it's part of your benefits coverage, or if it's being paid for in another way, we're only beginning to move the needle in terms of solving for that.
1: So what do you think is a bigger barrier to implementation? Appreciation of clinical utility, which you just alluded to, or inhibitory costs?
0: I don't think it's costs. Um, I do think it's the combination of lack of familiarity uh, coupled with an inherent delay between uh, needing to get that information. So in other words, thinking about this theoretically, here's a perfect scenario, Andrew. If you had a, a population, we can probably identify a core cohort of genetic testing, a panel, if you will, that covers the lion's share of genetic testing for PGX. And if a provider knew that, they could go into their system and type in what they wanted to prescribe and immediately get feedback of what the appropriate medicines would be for that individual, what type of metabolizer this patient was, what the optimum medicine was, and have a full interpretation and then utilize that information in terms of informing a script That's perfect. That would be a situation where PGX would naturally be included as part of how physicians practice. But what I just described is a perfect scenario, and we're far away from that.
1: So, in in some of your writing, you refer to employers and payers. Can you briefly explain what these terms mean in this context and how decisions are generally made to implement available healthcare options?
0: You know, who pays for health care? So our tax dollars go to uh, pay for Medicare. Medicare is health coverage for uh, Americans over the age of 65 federal and state taxes go to fund medicaid that funds health care coverage for folks that are under a certain income level in society and the remainder of that is split between individual insurance and private insurance uh, which is dominated by employers so for working americans and their families. What we're talking about are employers who pay for health care coverage, and that payment is a shared cost. And over the last two decades, we've seen what uh, an employee has to pay increase significantly. But at the end of the day, what you have with the employer is they self-identify as uh, the payer here. They are making a decision in terms of which insurance carrier to go with, what sort of health plans to offer their employees, and also what additional programs or services might be bundled together for that population of employees and then the employees, spouses, and dependents. When you look at employers, many of them, especially larger employers, and this is a growing trend, are self-insured. So in other words, they utilize Either an insurance company or a third-party administrator to administer the plan, uh, but in the end, uh, as they like to view it, it's their money, and so they start to look at this as an investment in in their population. And what they value can vary from employer to employer, but there are certain commonalities there.
1: So, when it comes to implementing new methods. How do the practicing clinicians come into the decision-making process? Do most of them simply use whatever's covered by insurance or by the employer, or is there a mechanism for them to push for implementation if they independently recognize its value?
0: There's a big disconnect between what payers want to have happen, what is covered, and then uh, treating providers. So in the end, treating providers go along a series of rules and regulations and clinical practice patterns that are developed to some degree based on uh, what is or isn't covered, but certainly based on guidelines from, say, specialty practice societies, etc. What is or isn't covered, however, can vary tremendously. And when we look at pharmacogenomics, you look at United Healthcare or Cigna or Aetna or Blue Cross Blue Shield of Arkansas or Montana or South Carolina, etc., cetera, Anthem, Kaiser, we can keep going. What we find is that the guidelines for what is or isn't paid for around pharmacogenomics greatly varies at this point. As we're talking today, the policies of all of the entities that I just described Uh, There are some commonalities, but there are more differences from plan to plan.
1: So how do employers and payers measure return on investment and how would they do this specifically for pharmacogenomics?
0: So that's a great question. Employers think of return on investment and value on investment. Return on investment is looked at in terms of direct dollars. So if I invest $1,000 $1,000 in something, will I ultimately, or in a reasonable amount of time, save $1,000 plus in unnecessary uh, expenditures? In other words, if I pay $150 for a course of antibiotic and it saves me a uh, hospitalization, uh, obviously the ROI is very clear there. The ROI that applies to pharmacogenomics Is similar, but a little bit different. So one is uh, when pharmacogenomics is introduced, uh, one is if you could eliminate unnecessary treatment, you're saving on the cost of those unnecessary treatments. Second, and probably more compelling from an ROI perspective, if you give somebody a suboptimal treatment, and either their condition or the side effects of the medicine causes additional morbidity and additional symptoms or bodily malfunction that results in hospitalization, etc., then uh, what you're doing is creating a whole lot more costs. And so ultimately, the return on investment proposition for pharmacogenomics is let's get the right medicine right away so that whatever that pharmaceutical is intended to do will happen right the first time, will be optimized, and will eliminate all of the unnecessary additional visits to the doctor, visits to the emergency room, personal symptomatology and quality of life that the patient might have as a result of not being uh, effectively treated. That's the core ROI for pharmacogenomics.
1: Could you expand on that a little bit and explain like what determinations do the payers or employers or integrated health systems use to to uh, gauge the value of the ROI. What data does an employer or a payer have?
0: I think it's important for stakeholders to recognize that large employers, even medium employers, state governments, managed care organizations for Medicare, uh, and even health systems get medical and pharmacy data. So they're able to really get a fairly detailed level, de-identified, but down to the level of the individual, information regarding medical activity. So they can track hospitalizations in one city versus another. They can track hospitalizations For certain conditions. They can trace hospitalizations just for women under 40 for certain conditions, as an example. So our ability in the industry on the payer side to slice and dice information is fairly sophisticated. And so when you start looking at applying a remedy like pharmacogenomics to a particular condition set, And you want to understand how it impacts rates of hospitalization, rates of readmission, length of stay, number of doctor's visits, recurrent ER visits, all of that, you can, down to the level of an individual, really track it. And so, our ability to be sophisticated and ultimately illustrate the storyline and therefore measure the dollars and cents and time it takes for pharmacogenomics to make a difference. Is fairly sophisticated. So what needs to happen is uh, that right confluence of stakeholders to get together and recognize, you know what, pharmacogenomics has a lot to offer. We do believe it could make an important difference for this type of condition in this type of setting and then be able to prove it. So so I think it's important to understand um, how detailed payers are able to get in terms of understanding what did happen, what used to happen versus what has happened now that we've introduced an intervention.
1: So what will it take to get adoption of pharmacogenomics in the employer benefit space?
0: It has to be something that enables a systems play. But there are a couple of ways. Uh, One is understanding the ecosystem that I've been talking about, where an employer is making decisions about what coverage is to make, being administered by, say, an insurance company over what's being paid for is applied to what the providers are or are not determining is a very complex system. There are a couple of ways those of us that are interested in seeing pharmacogenomics advance could go. One is value-based medicine. So value-based medicine says we will pay for results uh, and not necessarily dictate what is or isn't covered. So there are uh, certain ways that uh, employers are starting to bring in value-based coverage for the treatment of certain diseases, for instance, for cardiac disease, uh, for psychiatric disease, for pain management, for instance. It is uh, conceivable that a third party outside of the insurance company could manage all aspects of one of the three that I described. And what they may find is, you know what, we believe in and we recognize that pharmacogenomics can help us build a much better outcome quicker and more efficiently and therefore probably less expensively And we're going to incorporate that in some of how we're going to manage it. And the way that value is paid is paid for results. So in some cases, that could be a bundled payment. Or in others, that could be a payment for incentives for positive results. So... Having pharmacogenomics recognized and adopted and incorporated by those entities that are looking at providing value-based solution is one very promising way. Some examples of that I think From a different angle, PBMs, uh, pharmacy benefit manager, because pharmaceutical costs and the logistics and operations and administration necessary to deliver on pharmacy benefits for a very large population are so complex. We have different entities. Very often an employer might work with a health insurance company for medical benefits, but pharmacy benefits are delivered differently. Pharmacy benefits managers who get involved at all levels of anything relating to fulfilling what the doctor prescribes are also in a position to start to adopt and embrace pharmacogenomics. We see things like mental health carve-out. So uh, a company may go with one insurance carrier entirely for medical uh, and even pharmacy, but when it comes to anything around mental health, carve that out. And that mental health carve-out provider, for instance, be in a position to adopt pharmacogenomics. So I think the challenge is that the pharmacogenomic advantage uh, should be recognized. It should probably be contained in a particular disease or condition set and then be administered or delivered through an entity that uh, exists in the ecosystem that that I've been describing.
1: So why would an employer pay for pharmacogenomics testing if their insurance carriers don't cover that testing?
0: The answer is uh, very much if I can get uh, greater value. So there are times where a company might say that we have a diabetes program. And if you participate in the diabetes program, you will get the cost of your medicines, uh, the copay for your medicines, uh, and other out of pocket expenses covered because you're participating. One reason to answer that question is that companies want their plan members to participate, to cooperate, and to improve their conditions, especially for conditions that have high costs, high prevalence, or a high impact on, let's say, presenteeism and absenteeism. So um, employers typically look to their insurance carriers for what should or shouldn't be covered, but are looking to other players to add uh, additional levels of excellence in uh, how they approach certain problems.
1: Uh, What are some of the opportunities you see for genetic testing in cancer?
0: Cancer is a huge cost driver. And, and when we talk about cancer, certainly inherited predisposition to cancer is one area. Uh, early detection of cancer is a second area. Pharmacogenomic uh, testing for cancer therapeutics is a third area. And then fourth is cancer genomics or testing of the, the tumor cell to understand its receptivity to uh, being treated by different agents. Cancer is an area that I think there's a lot of excitement around because cancer is, is big time when it comes to medical costs. Cancer is big time when it comes to life and death. It impacts everybody in some form. And what genetics can do is, is considerable. I will say that uh, in the different delineations that I just described, we have a sizable way to go before an informed marketplace is achieved. In other words, it's going to take a while before key decision makers at employers, health plans, etc., cetera, fully understand the capability. So some of what I just described already exists and is already covered. The BRCA gene is covered according to current uh, standards and guidelines. Early detection, such as liquid biopsies, are almost never covered, uh, but there is a growing appetite for understanding what they can bring to the table. Pharmacogenomics for some of the uh, chemotherapeutics is becoming a little more common, but is largely driven by NCCI, ASCO, and other guidelines. And then ultimately, cancer genomic testing, where we actually test the tumor cells is growing uh, tremendously and uh, that's the one that we're seeing a lot of movement uh, as the technology is rapidly improving and the capabilities and possibilities are opening up. So cancer is its own arena uh, when we talk about both genetic testing and specifically pharmacogenomics.
1: What excites you about genomics in the future And where do you see precision medicine in five to 10 years?
0: If we would have this conversation five years from now, we will have made tremendous strides. I think that there is uh, an inevitable when it comes to a lot of these capabilities. So I think there will be a point when pharmacogenomics becomes cost-effective to run on a much larger population, and the uh, ability for providers to get real-time or just-in-time information in any one of a number of ways of solving for that will make uh, our ability to leverage the technology will help us realize that uh, that ability. Uh, I think we will see more specialties start. To embrace it. And then certainly in all forms of um, treating cancer, both from a pharmacogenomic and from a cancer genomic uh, perspective, precision medicine is clearly where much of the action will be. And uh, it's high stakes for uh, all the right reasons. And that is uh, to improve health, to eliminate disease, to reduce morbidity, save lives, and, and prolong um, a more extended quality of life.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and educating us about some of the variables that influence the bridge between the potential of genomics technology and their actual implementation in real-life precision medicine. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Likewise, Andrew. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you for joining us today. If you like today's show, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. We'll talk to you next time at the Illumina Genomics Podcast.